0: Do you or someone you love suffer from cage-stage Calvinism? Well, We have the antidote from the original Calvinist himself, John Calvin. In this episode, we're going to look at the first two chapters of his classic work, A Little Book on the Christian Life, to hear practical and pastoral advice from Calvin on connecting doctrine with life, loving self-sacrificially, and living generously with our money and our whole lives. Our hope is that through this episode, you'll see Calvin in a new light, Calvin for who he truly is, not some ivory tower theologian concerned only with abstract notions of predestination and election, but a pastor and a shepherd who cares about people and who wants to exhort them to strive toward holiness and righteousness. He wants to encourage us to celebrate the small wins, not to be discouraged in the difficulties and trials of our lives, and to persevere with hope so that our lives will be saturated with the worship of God. You're listening to That'll Preach. I'm Brian, this is Paul, with me, my co-host, and uh, we're back together again, although over a Zoom call, but uh, we're back together again to talk about some Reformation topics. We've been doing a series on the Reformation And I have been learning a lot as I've been going through a lot of the primary materials and reacquainting myself with Luther and Calvin and Richard Hooker and all these different uh, reformers. So it's been a really great experience for me, but I'm glad to have Paul here, my co-host with me again from an unnamed bunker. Uh, you're always at a different location whenever we Zoom in. You're living in different people's houses. If you guys have been following our show for a while, you know that Paul's a squatter. He just finds different people, and he lives in their basement. Paul, where are you right now?
1: I am in an undisclosed location. All you've got to see is this little microwave in the background. Which yeah, it's a very I bright just... <laughs>
0: red microwave from
1: 1950, it looks like. But, but uh, uh, it gets the job done. I feel like I'm in an I think I said this last time. I'm like an itinerant philosopher. You really just are just go around and philosophize and people let me live in their house. And are you in a basement right now? No, there's some sunlight. It's actually gorgeous here. Oh really? <laughs> but it, it looks like a bunker, which is my typical MO. So right. I I don't follow you for thinking that.
0: You haven't paid rent in like two years, so
1: it's I mean, it's true. props to you. Like actually this entire year, I have not paid to live anywhere. It's, it's, I mean, I'm never going to have this again anywhere else in my life, but unless you marry Richard. Yeah, that's true.
0: Well, for this episode, I thought it'd be good for us to look at one of John Calvin's works, uh, a little book on the Christian life. And uh, this book is actually an excerpt from uh, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is what Calvin is famous for, which people say, I mean, he wrote it when he was 27, but the first draft was a very small kind of outline and over the successive decades he added to it so the thing that you have now that you pick up at barnes and noble or you get off amazon or whatever is not something he came up with when he was 27 it's it's a much larger time
1: frame the construction of this book but i actually i didn't i didn't know that that's so right. this is not, so it was just the first draft that he published. Okay. That makes me feel better about myself. Right.
0: Right. Now this little book in the Christian life though is taken from, I'm, I'm actually not sure if the little book in the Christian life is from that first draft or not, but at least from the totality of his institutes, this is a little section that has been published multiple times because I think it's a very concise, pastoral, practical uh, book of instruction For the Christian life. And people forget that about Calvin. When you think about Calvin, Calvinism, you think about ivory tower, theologian, think about this guy who's just consumed with his books and not dealing with people. And that's, that's not the truth at all. Calvin was a pastor. He saw him first. He saw himself first and foremost as a pastor. And that really comes out through this book. So what I want to do is help our audiences understand the more pastoral side of Calvin, which I would argue, and probably when he thought about his own vocation, he thought was the The primary mode of his work was to equip the saints was to teach them, to pastor them, to care for them. And this book is a great way that I think he he, he does that. um the goal of of this book is to get people to live in harmony and uh, and and basically agree with the 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 holiness and righteousness of God. and it's 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 one of those ways where he describes that because God is holy, we should be holy. I mean, that's essentially the essence of his teaching and the law, his word, which reflects God's image. That's the standard by which we conform to it, and through conforming to it, we become more and more like God. And that's the goal. We want to become like God, and we do that by obeying Him, by being in union with Him through Christ. And um, so, he's trying to give a he says a universal model to order lives to the goal of glorifying God, glorifying God and glorifying God would be living a holy life, worshiping him, obeying him. So it's practical. Um, it's something that he actually draws on a lot of scripture from, he does a lot of great practical exegesis from different portions of scripture. And, uh, he also says that he wants to give, uh, basically, he wants the force of scripture to affect every facet of our lives. And I think that's what's really effective about this little work. So if you guys want to pick it up, get it on Amazon. It's it's a tiny little book. It's really not that long. It's really accessible. And uh, I think there's a lot to it. So Paul, what were your thoughts when you were reading through this? Or what do you think is important about this work by Calvin?
1: I thought it was interesting that he's offering, it's, it's a practical manual for how to live the Christian life. And it it's coming, I mean, Calvin's not the first person to do something like this. You find manuals like this in the ancient tradition from Aristotle, from the church fathers, where it's 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 highlighting virtue and, and painting a vision for what an excellent human life is. But what Calvin's doing distinctively, which is more than just what the ancients were doing, is he's trying to give a specifically Christian motivation for the Christian life and a specifically Christian picture of what the Christian life looks like. And so this is why throughout he sort of takes digs and jabs at the philosophers who give us an account of Rightly <laughs> so. virtuous life. Rightly were you, so, were yeah. you offended? Were you offended? I was, Well, I mean, I think he's got very specific people in mind, and I think I'm not one of those people. Yeah, so I of course sort you. of took that as yeah. a, yeah. maybe that was special pleading. But I mean, he's trying to say that we shouldn't be ashamed of the Christian resources that we have in scripture. And we should, you know, uh, look look to scripture, paint a specifically Christian vision of the Christian life. And don't just don't just rely on natural law. Don't just rely on the ancient Greek philosophers, um, but have a specifically Christian view of what it is to live well. And and so that means living for the glory of God, living um, as a member of Christ's body and all of those concepts play a really important role in how he thinks uh, a human life should look excellently. Um, And so I'm, I'm excited to dig into some of the specifics for that.
0: He actually says that it's not my intention to say too much, nor to discuss every virtue in such great detail, in order to stray into lengthy exhortations. Such exhortations can be found in the writings of those who have gone before us, especially in the sermons of the church fathers. Mm-hmm. So he's saying, look, uh, this is not even like a collection of sermons. It's not meant to even exhort you. It's, it's a simple guide. Right. And he does make that dig at philosophers. I mean, he says the philosophers wanting to draw attention to themselves strive to be very clear. Clear, that is, in showcasing their own rhetorical skills. So he he's saying like, look, <laughs> this is not about pageantry or just external religiosity. Um, this is about the transformation of the heart. And so he's really going against those philosophers that are self-indulgent, pursuing virtue merely for virtue's sake. And I think that's a really key point where he's saying that this is not moralism. This is not just simply being a stoic or living the right way that even virtue has its end of union with God, even virtue has mm-hmm. its end of glorifying God. And that really the the pinnacle of the Christian life isn't even virtue as such, just living this ordered righteous life, but it is the worship of God, that there's fundamental to human nature is this need to be in union with their creator. And that creator is revealed in Jesus Christ. And that's the telos of the of the human life. And apart from that, we can never have that full satisfaction. And so he really has, I think, a very cohesive view of the end of human nature, what we're, what we're striving toward and the means through which God brings us to that end through the law, through the words that he gives us and through the incarnation, through the gospel. All these things are meant to service us so that we can reach that final destination
1: of of ultimate union with God. Yeah. And and, and more specifically, If we're talking about the motivation for why to live a virtuous life, he says philosophers can only give us excellent exhortations to virtue, but they can only tell us to live agreeably to nature. So think of the natural law tradition, think of Aristotle. They'll say, okay, well, we should live a good life because that's our nature. Our nature is to to be virtuous, to be generous. But then you can imagine a skeptic or somebody who's just like, well, who cares what my nature is? What if I want to live contrary to nature, right? Like why, why should that be motivating for me? And so he Calvin specifically says that Christianity has a better story for the motivation for why to be virtuous. He says, if the Lord adopts us for his sons on the condition that our life can be a representation of Christ, the bond of our adoption then, unless we dedicate and devote ourselves to righteousness, we not only with the utmost perfidy revolt from our creator, but also abjure the savior himself. So there's a, there's a, the telos that you mentioned, there's we're for God. And so living with this idea that it's not just my nature to be good, but this is, there's a command from God. And he quotes scripture there, be holy as I am holy. So the the impetus there is to obey God's command. But also when you think of what it is that Christ has purchased for you, and given you, that itself is a much better motivation to want to live virtuously than just, well, this is my nature, right? He's saying you are literally doing damage to the Savior. You are rejecting God's plan for your life if you decide to live wickedly. And so Christianity transforms this idea that we're living into our nature by adding the component that God's commanding us to do this. And also we're doing a great deal of harm or disservice or dishonor to God by living like this. So it, it, it I think it's kind of compelling, um, especially to someone who's a, a skeptic. And, and it seems like he's talking to Christians specifically here. Um, and so the Christian has unique resources to explain why it is that we should be virtuous. And also, I guess, why it's far worse when we're not virtuous. We're, we're doing a lot more damage, not just harming our nature, but doing something far worse.
0: That adoption part is so key. Because he's saying holiness isn't just, again, seeking virtue and this sort of do the right thing, all those types of things. Even living in accordance with nature or natural law. He's saying it's all done in the context of this familial bond that we have with God through Christ. That to be holy is not abstracted from being a son of God. Being brought into the family of God and him becoming our father. And so the commands... To holiness are commands not from just abstract being in the sky or abstract laws, but from a father who loves his children, who is raising us to bear familial traits to himself, to be like him in holiness. And you think about that, that's that's an analogy to how families are with adoption in our own lives. I mean, when a child is adopted, he goes into a, another family. And then he takes their last name and he starts to talk like them. He starts to enjoy the things that they enjoy. He becomes enculturated into their family culture. He begins to bear the attributes of his family. And there's an analogy there, I think, with God's call to holiness. He's calling us into his family. And by calling us into his family, we're going to bear a family resemblance, which is holiness. We're going to look like him in that way. And to deny that is to deny that familial bond. So I love how he couches holiness always in the context of the gracious relationship that God has with his people as a father does with his child. And it goes into like the way that he applies theology, I think is really important because he takes uh, theological truths and then makes them, shows how they lead to these applicatory conclusions, right? He says the Holy spirit has consecrated us as temples of God. We therefore must let the glory of God shine through us and we must not not pollute ourselves with sin. So there's this reality of what has been done. We've been consecrated by the spirit as temples of God. Therefore, if that's true, if we are, if that's the, the, the truth of who we are, then this imperative follows that we must live in that way. Right. Our bodies and souls have been destined to heavenly incorruption and unfading in an unfading crown. We therefore must strive upward, keeping ourselves pure and incorruptible until the day of the Lord. So this is a truth of what's already happened. You've already been made uh, to already been destined, predestined to (laughs) heavenly incorruption and unfading crown. Okay, that's who you are. That is your destiny. Therefore, live like that's true. Right. If that is your destiny, why would you corrupt yourself? So it's not fatalism. Right. But he is saying that the ground of our action is in the unmerited action of God on our behalf in consecrating us by his spirit, forgiving us of our sins, destining us for eternal glory and righteousness. And to me, that perspective, that the the proclamation of who we are is the ground for the command to how we must act is I think really important in understanding the dynamics of the Christian life. You have to know who you are. You are adopted, right? You have been saved. And therefore, because that is true, these are the commands from the one who loves you and who saved you.
1: Right? I mean, it's it's such a helpful reminder that it's very easy to think that the reformers were concerned just about these abstract principles and when you think of what Calvin's famous for, it's the predestination, it's the tulip that we've inherited later and used to articulate or schematize his views. But he's very deeply concerned with, I mean, basically this idea that faith without works is dead. And he says, doctrine is not an affair of the tongue, but of the life. And so if you if you claim to be a Christian, if you're paying lip service to uh, the gospel, that's that's never going to be enough. And he accuses several times people who just pay lip service to the gospel or or love God with their mouths but not their lives and their actions don't reflect um the gospel that they've been called to. and it I mean there there's there's this combination of the intellect and the rest of the body that what you apprehend with your intellect, if it doesn't transform the way that you live your life, then arguably there's a kind of, I mean counterfeitness—that it's it's not real—and I mean he, I'm guessing that he's seeing this in his in his congregations or he's seeing this in in people's lives around him um, because it's it's a it's a problem that you see in the Old Testament and the New Testament. This idea that you can pay lip service but not actually walk the walk, and it almost sounds like Francis of azizi esque, but it's not. I mean, it's not sort of he, he's not giving us a works righteousness, but he is just giving us this idea in Scripture that God is about transforming who we are. And if what regeneration is, is making a dead person alive, then there should be a difference in behavior and activity and affections in that process. And so regeneration has this practical output that you, you see that someone's regenerated. And so doctrine is not just about what you believe sort of intellectually, but how it affects the way that you carry out your life. Um, So he is, he is being extremely pastoral here in a way that I, I mean, I, i i I'd known deep down, that it was it was super helpful to have this as a reminder.
0: It's funny because Calvin it, people think that he just invented like a predestination. like he yeah. no one thought about. But he's really just drawing from Augustine and from the church fathers. He, he he kind of assumes it. He's not saying like, I'm trying to make this novel argument. But his main focus is really not even in discussing these kind of abstract things. But rather, again, he's trying to get to the nuts and bolts of the Christian life. And he says this. He says, we have given priority to doctrine, which contains our religion, since it establishes our salvation. So doctrine is very important. I mean, the gospel is doctrine. You're making theological statements. You can't have Christianity without doctrine. Doctrine is important. What we believe is important. What we say is true is important. Or rather, what we recognize and affirm is objectively true is, is important. But in order for doctrine to be fruitful to us, it must overflow into our hearts Spread into our daily routines and truly transform us within. In other words, it's not enough to apprehend that these things are true, but they have to sink in, right? For it to be fruitful in our lives, it's got to actually get into the soil of our hearts and transform us. And so people will say, well, if you're Calvin, it doesn't matter what you do. You're predestined, doesn't matter. You can't do anything to get out, you can't do anything to get in. And for Calvin, he's like, no, if you understand what salvation is, then the fact that you have been regenerated, that you are elect, is actually what motivates you to live righteously. It should actually spur you on to action if you rightly understand it. And also doctrine, because there's that trope, and maybe it's deserved of Calvinist and reformed guys being all about head, not about heart. Sometimes people, what they mean by that is you're all about intellect and not feels, which I don't think feels are any better. Or (laughs) I think having the intellect is actually better than just having Feels that's what they mean. You're you're not raising your hand in worship or something like that. That's a very superficial kind of critique. But I think there is a legitimate critique in that you don't want to think, I affirm these propositions. I understand how doctrine works. Therefore, I'm done. That's what God requires of me. When he says, no, it's not fruitful merely to know these doctrines, to understand them, or even to articulate them well. The goal is that it would be fruitful in your life that it would, again, it would blossom in your life, that it would work itself out in the actual way that you live your life. And primarily it works itself out through self-sacrificial love. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that he really begins to emphasize. Um,
1: It's, It's interesting that, I mean, he, another, he's sort of like, he hammers this point over and over and over again, that it's not... I mean, it, it's not primarily for our sake that that we owe God a virtuous life. So it, not, it is good for us. And he does play that up, that the right. virtuous life is the excellent life for us. But he thinks that we it is a matter of justice that yes. we live in certain ways because God owns our bodies. And he says that over and over and over again. we are not our own therefore let us forget ourselves and the things that are ours we are gods let us therefore live and die to him we are not our own neither is our own reason or will to rule our acts and counsels. we are not our own therefore let us make it our end to seek what may be agreed therefore let us make seek what may be agreeable to our carnal nature it's i mean i think this is really important because he's he's trying to improve on The ancient conception of virtue here that it's not just that this is how you live well but there is an obligation here there's there's a command you belong to somebody else so it's not even you can't just say well i don't care about my nature who cares i'm just gonna live how i want for calvin that's just not an option because your body doesn't belong to you you literally belong to somebody else and so there's a You have to take into account what this other agent behind the world has in mind for how he wants you to live your life. And so that's gonna affect how you think about your money, how you think about your time, how you think about your resources. Everything is God's. It's not up to you to decide how to determine this. You are at most a steward of your body and your resources, which I think we'll get to later. But I mean, that idea is just, it's really profound. And you don't see it um, in the ancients. You see it in the church fathers a little bit, but i think calvin does a really good job of emphasizing this here
0: well there's an accountability if if you were created by god it's not only he's saying this is your body belongs to me i know what's best for you but like i can hold you to account mm-hmm. because i have given you life i have created you and so there's that accountability that the the philosophers the greek philosophers and the ancient philosophers would not not have had He does caveat, and he says, I'm not saying that the conduct of a Christian will breathe nothing but pure gospel, although this should be desired and pursued. I'm not, in other words, talking about gospel perfection as if I were unwilling to acknowledge or recognize a man or woman as a Christian who has not obtained perfection. So he's saying, look, I get it. Nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. No one's perfect. But we should not let the pursuit of progress be impeded by the tyranny of perfection. Right, He's saying, this can be something we aim for. I mean, you just think about like physical exercise. No one's gonna be in physical perfect, perfectly physical health. But when we say someone's healthy, we're not saying that they're in perfect physical health. We're saying they're pursuing health and that their body's operating in a proper way. And I think you can say that about a Christian, that you're not gonna be perfect, but we should be healthy in that sense. We should be people in pursuit of this progress in godliness. And so he's he's saying, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I don't want people to be under that yoke or that burden of perfectionism. Precisely because I want them to actually grow and pursue godliness. So uh, we want to fix our eyes on the goal and sole object of our pursuit, which is the glory of God. And that's he, really he what he's trying to that, people
1: doing. He does say that we should hold that as an aspiration, though. Yes. Like we should hold yes. that as something in front of right. us to aim right. to. And not, I guess the the, the point that you're pointing out is that he doesn't want us to take our evidence when we look at ourselves, when we see that we're not being faithful all the time. Right. That doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Right. Or that, that, that you should give up we're... the pursuit. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah.
0: And because he does say, for however much our successes fall short of our desire, our efforts aren't in vain when we are farther along today than yesterday. Yeah. Right. He says, neither let us despair over how small our successes are. So he's all about the small wins. Mm -hmm. And that to me is so practical and so helpful because that's just real. I mean, like I don't, sometimes people can play up. I had this amazing experience at a conference and I changed and I believe that that happens. But for most of us, it's just, you just like one degree at a time. Day by day, you're changing little by little. It's two steps forward, sometimes three steps back, and then five steps forward. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. And it's nice for Calvin to be like, look, I am talking to human beings, myself being one of them. And I am saying that you should celebrate the small wins. God is at work in you. Don't give up. And so much of, I think, his pastoral exhortation is just don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Keep going. I mean, you could argue the Book of Hebrews is just the, the thesis is don't give up, you know. And I think that kind of faith that perseveres is so critical, and that's what Calvin is trying to draw forth. Um, mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned we, we alluded to is how he owns our bodies, our finances, our lives, all those all those aspects of our life, and self sacrifice is really the the topic that he tackles in his second chapter when he talks about. Uh, self-denial and he really sees that as a fruit of the christian life and he sees that self-denial as as part of love maybe maybe even just a synonym for love i mean he's talking about self-denial as a primary mode in which we express the love of god that comes from within us by the holy spirit Um, and he he even says that the law of god and this is a fascinating phrase that he begins the second section with he says the law of god Uh, It is best and most suitable instruction for the proper ordering of our lives. Nevertheless, it seemed good to our heavenly teacher to conform us by an even more precise rule than what's given in the precepts of the law. This is the sum of that rule. It is the duty of believers to present their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And in this consists genuine worship of him. So he's saying it's not just that scriptures, they give you the guide. They give you what God calls you to do and to be. But it's not meant to stop there. It's sort of, I, I don't know if this is a great analogy—but I, I think about it like vows. Vows are meant to show you what your marriage is to be, to, to what you've committed to in a marriage. And yet, your marriage is more than the vows. Your marriage is supposed to be a whole way of life, a whole way of seeing, a whole way of seeing the world, yourself, and your spouse, and your family, and all those types of things. And I think that's what he's trying to get at with here. You don't just—the commandments are meant to to be means through which to cultivate a life of wholehearted devotion, in which all your aspects of your life are devoted to God. So you don't need a command for every little part of your life, but rather you need a transformed heart so that your desires and your, your will is transformed such that you make decisions based upon what glorifies God, that that's the engine of your life. It's not just multiple prescriptions for every situation, but the whole engine and direction of your life is changed so that you can start making these decisions and living your life in a way that honors god and again it's about that inner transformation i want you to become a different kind of person right and i think that was a really powerful way of uh of articulating it um we yeah, are consecrated sure. and dedicate to god to the end that we may not that we might not think speak meditate or act unless it be to his glory
1: right? it definitely it, it it calls to mind i mean we did a series way back on uh the capital vices and the deadly yeah. sins and yeah you can you can tell that i mean calvin calvin's reading the church fathers and even the words that he uses for the vice and the virtues he's getting straight from john Casian he's getting from evagrius from gregory the great he talks about he even like can, uh sorts self-love as a capital vice and that leads to pride and then pride leads to the actual physical vices of avarice and lust and luxury and so he he's got he's got a pretty good schema in mind for the virtues so he's got this abstract um concept he's got all the scriptural stuff and then he's drawing on the tradition of virtue and vice in the patristic literature um and and sort of saying that this is this is something that the reformers can look to as well this isn't just a roman catholic concoction right and i i found that really interesting that he's using the same sorts of terms and he's grounding them in scripture every time he mentions a list of virtues or vices he'll put a verse from matthew or something from uh, one of the paulian epistles and he's he's supplementing or showing how these two traditions of scriptural interpretation and patristic reflection on the virtues and vices are actually they they come really well Together. And he actually divides virtues into three categories. I was curious what you thought of this because I don't know anybody else in the church tradition who divides them into sobriety, righteousness, and godliness.
0: Yeah. Which is interesting.
1: Sobriety meaning like you are sober minded, where he includes chastity and temperance, someone who is master of their lives and their resources, frugal use of temporal goods patience endurance so that's one category and then righteousness is about justice and fairness giving everyone what they're owed what's due to them and so when you think about righteousness is we're giving god what's due to him what we owe him and then godliness which is separation from the pollution of the world um and so it's it's it's, it's more than just like ceremonial and civil but it, it's it's a, it's a richer conception of how we can think about the virtuous life He says, show me if you can an individual who, unless he has renounced himself in obedience to the Lord's command, is disposed to do good for its own sake. Those who have not so renounced themselves have followed virtue for the sake of praise. So it's kind of saying, and and Luther says similar stuff, that almost like unless you are regenerate, every act that you do, even if it's an externally good act, is done for selfish gain. So the strong way to read that is that only if you're a Christian, only if you're regenerated, can you ever do something truly virtuous, where you're not doing it for praise, you're not doing it for material gain, you're not doing it for for ostentation or or being noticed. I mean, that it, it's a strong claim, and Christians have historically defended that. So pagan virtue is not really virtuous. There's always something tainted or mixed about it. Another weaker way to read it would just be even the good things that the pagans do, it's done empowered by the grace of God in an imperfect way. Hmm. Now, I, I think Calvin's actually saying the stronger thing. So I'm not. I don't know if I agree with the stronger way to read that. But I was curious if you had thoughts on that. I mean, it is really difficult to do something virtuous completely for its own sake, without any t- like tinge of self interest or, you know, I mean th- that's a really difficult thing to do. M- maybe none of us ever does that. It's always mixed. But Calvin I definitely thinks, think it's it,
0: always mixed.
1: Yeah. So maybe maybe that's the case. Every time we do something, it's it's tainted. And you have to be regenerate for even the possibility of doing something truly, truly virtuous for its own sake, Mm -hmm. with not a shred of self ambition or self-interest or desire for praise or desire for acclaim. Like this is it's so it's so natural to us to when we do something good. We want there's always like some selfish part of it right like you you show up early to volunteer at the soup kitchen but it's because you want to bump into the cute girl who works there right like there's always there's always Hypothetically,
0: hypothetically hypothetically
1: totally yeah this is just this is i've heard from a friend but i mean like this is this is just like this is very natural to us and i think calvin's very attuned to that that our psychology has this natural bent because of sin that even the things that are good that we do we do them for bad reasons um So, yeah, maybe the challenge is not that big of a challenge. Maybe he's right. Well, I think it shows that
0: he does have an understanding of human psychology. He does know people well, and it's probably from his pastoral experience. He talks about how when others possess gifts that we would admire in ourselves or even better gifts, we spitefully ridicule and degrade their gifts, refusing to rightly acknowledge them as gifts. Similarly, when others possess vices, we're not content merely to point them out and harshly and sternly reproach them, but we wickedly exaggerate them. Thus, mm-hmm. our arrogance grows as we seek to exalt ourselves above others, as if we were different from them. And so this is not maybe exactly like what you were talking about with the challenge. I'm not exactly sure what my thoughts would be on that, but it made me think about how people actually operate yeah. in which, you know, you can uh, ridicule something wrong in someone and be righteous about it but then it never stops there because you will one refuse to acknowledge the good that they do have. You'll exclude the positive, uh, but you will also exaggerate the wickedness that you see in them. And I think there's a mix of that. Even if when you call someone out and maybe rightfully so it doesn't stop at reproach, but oftentimes, again, we exaggerate them and we use their flaws to build us up. And Calvin basically calls this wicked. He says, thus our arrogance grows as we seek to exalt ourselves above others. And, He says that that verb grows, he views it as a habit. This is a disposition that we cultivate. So if we continually see the faults in other people and we refuse to see the positives in them, then it becomes this self-aggrandizing exercise that slowly over time begins to shape this distorted vision of ourselves where we think that we're unlike all these other people. And uh, he talks about how poor people will defer to the rich outwardly, common people to nobles, servants, to masters, the unlearned, the educated. There's all these external ways in which people will say, oh, you're my, you're my superior. You know more than me. You're a higher class than me, all that stuff. But then he says, but there's not one who does not nourish a high opinion of himself within. Hmm. So even the lowest of the person can still have a very exalted vision of themselves, even if they go. We are the poor, we're the destitute, those rich people over there, they're morally destitute, they're evil, and we're the righteous poor. You know, everyone is kind of viewing themselves in that lens. And he says that's a universal condition that we love to place ourselves in that positive light. We de emphasize our flaws and we overemphasize others. And we also conversely de emphasize their positive virtues and we overemphasize ours. And he calls this uh, everyone flatters himself and carries, as it were, a kingdom in his heart, right? Someone can appear so smooth and pleasant and nice. They can seem very gentle. um, But once they're pricked, once there's conflict, uh, this superficial appearance of modesty, he calls it, uh, reveals the toxic disease of self. And we see that. I mean, we do that. Everyone does that. Where anyone can be polite, Anyone can say the niceties, but once the rubber meets the road, people's hearts are revealed. And oftentimes what's revealed is not great. I mean, I hear this from parents all the time, right? (laughs) It's like, (laughs) oh, wow, I didn't realize the vicious sin lurking within me until that two-year-old summoned it out of me, Mm -hmm. right? But
1: Calvin knows people. I was going to say he's very pessimistic about human nature but I think the better word for it is very, he's very realistic about human oh, nature. Oh yeah, absolutely. He just knows and I mean he, he's talking from his own experience but he's he's pastoring people and he sees even when it looks like there's a a good outward display there, there's something that is selfish about it and so he exhorts um he exhorts us that we will succeed in mortifying ourselves if we fulfill all the duties of charity. However, these duties are not fulfilled merely by discharging them, unless they're done from a pure feeling of love. And now by yeah. feeling of love, he doesn't mean you just have to like airy-fairy, positive sort of psychology type of right. stuff, but it has to be moved like moved by charity. You right. have to, 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 when you give to the, the poor man, you do so because you love or care when you are even correcting a brother, rebuking them or calling them out, it has to be done from caring about their good. And here Calvin has this view, to love someone is to pursue and want the good for them. And so if you're not doing the good thing because you want the good for that person, you're not truly loving them. It's not really an act from charity. If you're doing the good thing because you want good for yourself, then that's just another way of being selfish. So not only do you have to have the right sort of external action, that's not enough to say that you've met your obligation. That's not enough to say that you're just or generous or virtuous or even temperate, right? If I'm being outwardly temperate just because I want people to praise me, that's not true temperance. So it has to be moved by the right reasons in a way that I think, I mean, it just it moves the bar higher for what it takes to be good. And you can see Calvin just over and over and over again. He sees that we are nowhere near Meeting God's standards. And there's no one righteous, no, not one. This is, it's, it's pervading his view of human nature. But this is why he thinks grace is important. How could we ever meet this challenge? How can we ever rise to the occasion and even hope or aspire to live like this? It's through God's grace. So anything good that we do, again, back to this idea that we are God's, we belong to God. And so any hope of fulfilling and living out the way he wants for us has to be something that he does in us because we don't have that in ourselves. And so here you see the theology really tying in with the practical here. If you have this realistic view of human nature, it's gonna lead you to be pessimistic about whether or not you can live in this way. And so grace is what comes in and accommodates or bridges that gap. And so, yeah, theology is not just this abstract enterprise. Your view of humanity will have very tangible implications for what you think about what's even possible in terms of virtue and living out a good human life. So much of this is
0: Christianity 101. I mean, he basically says, when you look at your brother, remember, he's a body part. He's a body part, a member of the body of Christ. Treat him as such. Strangers, even your enemies, even if they've wronged you, remember that they still have the image of God on them and they deserve respect and dignity. That's a powerful claim. And he does mm-hmm. speak in terms of obligation. You mentioned that word. He says that um, it shouldn't be considered a favor to help out a member of the body of Christ, but rather as an obligation that would be unnatural to refuse. He doesn't mm-hmm. want it to be a favor because then they'd be indebted to you or they would lift you up. But rather, no, it is my duty to save you. No, not the duty to save you, duty to serve you. Right. Mm-hmm. And then he says this. Um, for the same reason, one who has performed a single obligation should not consider himself free from doing more, as generally happens when a wealthy person, after offering something of his own, leaves it to others to see to remaining needs, as if such remaining needs had nothing to do with him. So he's saying a wealthy person, um, they they offer, they write a check, and they go, I'm done. It's like, no, 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 it's not about assuaging your guilt. It's not about making you feel like you did a good thing. Love demands more than that, and you know I'm guilty of this. Everybody's guilty of it. You know, you're helping people move, and you're like, "Well, I move this box, so I can just chill." You know, you don't think, (laughs) or like, I can only I only need to work hard for this amount of time, and the rest, you know, I'm not responsible for. And sometimes we do that. It's it's not just that. It's not that we don't love. It's that we halfway love. We we use a little bit of faithfulness to excuse ourselves from what the actual call is, Hmm. and he starts picking at the, the wealthy people too, which you love as a Marxist, uh, as a neo-Marxist communist, you love talking about that. So now I see you have, you, you want to talk a little bit about money and blessings. What, uh, what got you on your socialist kick there,
1: Paul? I was going to say, we, we should just read out passages from this and not say that they're Calvin and have yeah, I guess. know. Yeah. <laughs> it was exactly. it's Karl Marx. It's, you know, right. whatever it's, but I mean, it's, it's something that we we don't do a good job of thinking about and we've lost the way that the church and even the reformers talk about wealth and money and calvin says that there cannot be a surer rule nor a stronger exhortation than that we are taught that all the endowments which we possess are divine deposits entrusted to us for the very purpose of being distributed for the good of our neighbor so everything that you have again once you have this theology in place that you are not your own your resources your time your money everything literally belongs to god when you have it in your bank account when you have it in your house it's just a deposit like you are like the banker being entrusted stewarding someone else's money or the landlord or the investor telling you this is what i want you to do with my money and my resources and That's how Calvin has in view, our relationship to God and resources. We're not like the money that you have in your bank account is not actually yours. It belongs to God. You're a steward. And there are ways to steward that inappropriately, if you're not using it for the purpose of the good of your neighbor. If you see that your neighbor has need and you can fulfill it and you don't use it, that's, it's not just a violation. It's not just a a personal violation. Mm -hmm. You are wronging God by failing to use his resources the way that he wants to, because again, it's not yours. That changes everything when you think of it like that. People don't emphasize this aspect of Calvin, but
0: he has very strong words about that, about wealth, Mm -hmm. and also the trappings of wealth and prosperity. Um, And this is funny, when you start to read these reformers, um, some of their aspects get more emphasized than others, but his talking about the charity we're supposed to show one another, the disposition of gentleness and humility. We're supposed to show one another. Um, it, it, sometimes you don't, you think about Calvin as cold and just stoic and you know, whatever. I mean, but there's a lot in here that shows he is a very tender pastoral heart. He cares about people, cares about the church mm-hmm. and he cares about what wealth does to us. He cares about our motivations and all these types of things
1: the version of calvin that we like to hold up is a version of calvin that meshes with our own preconceived notions and this is why we play up the tulip and yes. the predestination and not the virtue and the stuff on money right. and luxury because yeah. that that would convict us as calvinists more it's it's, it's almost easy to be pro tulip right like but it's difficult to live out a life where you are generous and care about others and are are, are truly sensitive and gentle and like not cage stage Calvinist, but like tender and compassionate and having a heart for the poor, that's, that's difficult. And so have we made Calvin in our own image? That's this book is challenging our conception of Calvin.
0: I like that. I like that. What a great way to end. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, share with your friends, visit our website, that'll preach.io false on Instagram at that'll preach podcast. Love to hear feedback from you guys. Appreciate you listening in. We we'll back next week.